Hello, patrons, and welcome to this week's alternate timeline. Um, uh, if I sound a little different than normal, I, it's because I am coming to you from a uh, dining room table in an Airbnb in Portland, where I am here for some like family emergency medical stuff. But um, we won't get into that. We're just going to get into the episode. So just a quick note on today's episode, we are going to mention child abuse. Um, we're not going to go into detail about anything, but I just wanted to kind of let you know that that is a topic that is going to come up. So this week we are talking about the flash forward episode, Give the Land Back, question mark, which is not the best title for an episode, but I couldn't really think of anything else and I didn't want to be too cheeky about it. So I just kind of went with something simple. But anyway, um, the episode was all about the land back movement in the US and Canada. I mentioned this in the episode, but this is really just kind of an entry point to this idea. There's a lot to say. Um, think of it as kind of like, I guess, a land back 101, if you will, Um I do hope that it inspired you to read up a little bit more about this, to maybe follow some of the links in the blog post, find local projects in your area, maybe follow some people on Instagram or Twitter or whatever social media platform you use, maybe follow some, you know, indigenous indigenous thinkers and writers um, who are all talking about this. So hopefully you went off and did some more research after the episode. Um I did consider doing an episode in the – or a section in the episode about sort of some non-U.S. cases. Um, particularly, we were looking at doing a section about Australia, which has a really interesting process by which people can kind of apply to the government to get land back um, – that process does not work super well and it has faced a kind of a lot of criticism, but it is still sort of interesting nonetheless in the way that that works and who has gotten land back through that process and who hasn't. Um, we decided not to do that. We decided to focus on the U.S. and Canada just so that we had enough time to kind of get into things and not feel like we were speeding through the history and the context too much. Um, but I know a couple of people have reached out that live in Australia and have asked for an update episode or another episode about this. So we might do sort of like a little mini, mini episode to talk about that, um, in the future, uh, at some point. So stay tuned for that maybe. Um, so the main thing that I wanted to talk about on this bonus episode that we did not get into in the main episode is, as I mentioned, the McGirt v. Oklahoma Supreme Court case. Now you might've heard about this case back in July when it happened, when the U.S. Supreme Court decided on it. Um, but there's sort of, it was a little bit confusing, I think. And also I think it was kind of poorly represented by the media. So, um, let's start with the basics of the case first, and then we can get into kind of analysis. And just to note again, like this, the crime that I'm about to discuss involves child abuse. So again, like I'm not going to get into it, but just so you know, that that's kind of the crime that we're talking about. So, um, In 1996, a guy named Jim C. McGirt was convicted of sex crimes against an underage underage child by a court in Oklahoma, and he was sentenced to life in prison, Um, and he was serving that term. And then in 2017, there were some other cases that kind of came up in the legal system, and McGirt's lawyers decided to appeal his conviction not arguing that he didn't do it, but instead arguing that he had committed the crime on land that was never officially ceded to Oklahoma, um, which basically meant that Oklahoma could not legally prosecute him because he was not on Oklahoma land. And in July, the Supreme Court basically agreed. So McGirt, in theory, is free from state prosecution, but he can still be and will be still prosecuted by the federal government for the same crime. That's Matthew Fletcher again. You heard him on the episode. And what that means is the state of Oklahoma cannot prosecute Indians for crimes committed within that reservation boundary. It doesn't return any land 
that is non-Indian-owned land or state-owned land to Indian tribes. It is only that one reservation, there's no land ownership shift, but there is a big shift, an important one, on criminal jurisdiction. Now, like I mentioned in the episode, this was reported with headlines like, you know, U.S. Supreme Court rules half of Oklahoma is Native American land. But that's not, like, exactly right. So the McGirt versus Oklahoma case um, involves, simply involves one reservation in Oklahoma that's not half of Oklahoma. It is the Muskogee Creek Reservation, which is a fairly large reservation. It includes parts of Tulsa, for example, and the southern suburbs of Tulsa, and a bunch of, a chunk of land below, uh, south of that. And all it did, it did not restore any land to the tribe or to any Indians, but what it did was say that the historic reservation boundaries of the Muscogee Creek Nation, protected by treaty, described by treaty, remain extant. Now, the reason that a lot of these newspapers say that half of Oklahoma um, is affected by this are because there are four other tribes that are similarly situated to Muscogee Creek who could benefit from the McGurk decision because they, they have similar histories, similar treaties. And those tribes are Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Seminole. And collectively, all five of these tribes make up about 40% of Oklahoma. So even if all five of the tribes receive the benefit of the McGirt decision, no land switches hands. People in Tulsa are not suddenly under the government of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Um, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't work that way. There are a couple of reasons why this case got so much attention in the news, or at least I sort of, I feel like it got a lot of attention. One of the reasons is because it was one of the first SCOTUS cases kind of argued mostly online in the era of Zoom cases because of coronavirus. The McGirt case is one of the rare times where you see treaty rights upheld by the Supreme Court in the face of incredibly intense opposition from state governments. The state of Oklahoma totally went to the mat to fight for its criminal jurisdiction that it had been exercising for over a century. And the Supreme Court affirmatively stated, you never had that criminal jurisdiction within this reservation. You were never supposed to have it. You could receive that criminal jurisdiction authority from Congress if Congress would pass a law saying so, but Congress never did that. And so why this case is important and so unusual and gets a lot of attention is really because the Supreme Court, in one of its uh, rare circumstances, actually upheld treaty rights. I mean, beyond, do you think it's just that it's so unusual for the Supreme Court to uphold them? Is there a reason why this particular case really kind of like caught the attention in that way? You know, I think it had a lot to do. I think the reason that the McGirt case got so much attention is because it's a fairly large reservation. Um, It touches upon a fairly large city, Tulsa, and most of the reservation land is now owned by non-Indians. Most of the people who live within the historic reservation are non-Indians. The state of Oklahoma, like I said, really went to the mat and put out a lot of information that was hysterical. Thousands of people will instantly be removed from jail, released from jail, will flood the whole state of Oklahoma with felons, you know, and thousands upon thousands of people. 
And I think that, uh, you know, the press loves that. That's how you get clickbait. That's how you sell ads. And so they were just reporting what Oklahoma was saying. And Oklahoma was doing the whole chicken little sky is falling kind of thing, which is usually what you don't get from state and federal governments. You know, they might, if they say something outrageous, it really makes news. They tend to be more staid when they go to the U.S. Supreme Court and argue a case. They tend to be um, careful and soft-spoken and forceful, but not not like this. Oklahoma just sort of lost its collective mind for several years over this case. And uh, this is not the first... I. It's Oklahoma. I mean, think of Oklahoma as the reddest state in the union. Not a single county in the last three elections voted, not more, at least three, not a single county in Oklahoma voted for a Democratic presidential candidate. And I don't know how many elections. I mean, it is the reddest state in the union. That's part of it. Um, we're talking about the the... You know, the petitioners here, the tribal members, are serious felons. One guy was on death row. The other was, a, um, you know, sex, sexually assaulted a child. I mean, these are terrible people who are getting the benefit of this, at least temporarily, until the federal government prosecutes them. So that, it's just a lot of weird combination of factors. I really do think that our national politics played a little bit into it, how journalism is evolving to rely heavily on internet advertising, and I mentioned clickbait. I think that's really a big part of it. But you know who was also participating in all of this were the national legal reporters, people who followed the Supreme Court and tend to write fairly innocuous, even boring articles about the Supreme Court. And they were the ones also, the New York Times, SCOTUS blog, uh, the big reporters of... Um, Supreme Court cases were saying half of Oklahoma is now in, you know, Indian land. So I think it just was, uh, I don't know what caused it, but it definitely was the loss of people's collective sanity for a short period of time. There's also an interesting element to the Supreme Court right now and this case in particular, which I think a lot of people don't know, which is that Neil Gorsuch, uh, who is a justice that Donald Trump appointed in 2017, actually has kind of a long history and um, a lot of experience working in Indian law. You know, it it's kind of ironic that, you know, Trump appointed one of the greatest federal Indian law legal minds to the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch. That is Graham Lee Brewer, again, someone you heard on the episode. Um, and while Gorsuch is usually a conservative justice who votes with the conservative bloc, he often breaks from them when it comes to Native American issues in particular. We saw that played out in the McGirt decision. Um, I thought he wrote quite eloquently about what was promised to tribes and what was never given. And so um, I think... Um, I mean, that's complicated by the conservative majority now, but I do think having someone like Neil Gorsuch on the court, someone who probably be there for a long time, um, it could bode well for tribes and could. And, you know, I think McGirt is already being used in so many legal arguments right now to make similar cases. So um, I don't know. I think I think a lot could happen in the next few years for sure. 
And I think that this kind of really well illustrates um, something that's really interesting to me, which is the complexity that arises in what's called Indian country, right? A lot of Native American folks are conservative, and some conservatives are actually fairly aligned with the tribes in a lot of on a lot of issues. You know, progressives tend to support tribal nations because they believe in justice and reparations, but conservatives often support these nations because they interpret legal history and treaties really literally and believe in smaller government, which we talked about on the episode. So it's sort of more complicated than saying like one side likes, you know, native people and other side doesn't. That's not really what's going on here. There's a really interesting podcast that I listen to called National Native News, which is sort of a daily update. It's short. It's like five to 10 minutes. Um, It's a daily podcast that provides sort of general news on Indian country. And I remember when Trump was elected, they did this episode where they were sort of talking about people's reactions to the election. And a lot of them basically said like, well, you know, like we've seen Democratic and Republican presidents and they've been pretty similar to us. You know, both sides have treated Native Americans in the U.S. pretty badly. So they weren't actually that concerned about Trump in particular. They were more concerned about, you know, Ryan Zinke, who Trump uh, appointed to as Secretary of the Interior uh, in 2017. Um, he resigned in 2019, but they were kind of more worried about that particular appointment and who was there than they were. Or they were more worried about that than they were about, like, who was the president, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, even this year, like some Navajo Nation leaders endorsed Trump as opposed to Biden. Other leaders endorsed Biden. So like it's not it's not simple. It's not just like all of Indian country is blue or whatever. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't also point out that in this election cycle in 2020, indigenous folks in the U.S. voted vastly against Trump, uh, particularly in key swing states like Arizona. Folks showed up in huge margins for Biden. Um for a variety of reasons, including the ways in which coronavirus has sort of ravaged uh, indigenous communities in the U.S. You can see some of the maps around um, different nations in the U.S. went completely blue and sort of actually had a big hand in helping get Biden the votes that he needed. Um, This is all to say that you can't sort of like collapse the indigenous vote down into a simple, clean, like obvious loyalty where it's like, oh, they always vote Democratic or they always vote Republican. Um, Much like we talked about in the voting episode, a lot of these folks have been ignored and you kind of have to win their votes on on both sides. Um, So that's kind of interesting. And that is really the main thing that I didn't wind up having time for in this particular episode. Um, Okay, moving on to like logistics stuff. There is no... Uh, advice episode this coming Tuesday because of the aforementioned sort of family stuff that I'm dealing with. Um, I'm up here in Portland right now, but the show will come back the week after next. Um, So stay tuned for that. Um, Other things to say is that if you listen to the podcast 20,000 Hertz, um, you will hear my voice on the most recent episode where I talked about utopia and sounds and the future. Um, I did that interview a long time ago and I have to admit, I don't remember what I said and I haven't listened yet. So hopefully it's smart. (laughs) I don't really know. Um, But that's really it. That's really all I have to say for this week. Um, And then at the end, I usually do a little secret. I don't really know what to tell you. Uh, I'm in Portland, and it's beautiful, and the leaves are changing, and I don't get to see that very often anymore because I live in California, and we don't, at least where I am, have, like, that kind of deciduous season-y thing. Um, And so that's really nice. Um, But that's really all I have for you. I don't have a great secret. Uh, We're in an Airbnb and so it has a microwave. We don't have a microwave in our house. And so I bought some microwave popcorn, which I was really excited about. Um, But that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Um, Okay. That's all for this week. I will be back in your ear holes soon. And um, I hope you had a great weekend and uh, I hope you're staying safe as much as possible. Okay. Bye.